Doug Brinkley, your new book, American Moonshot, what's it about? Well, it's really about how John F. Kennedy put all of his political chips on this idea of going to the moon by the end of the 1960s. The big moment was on May 25th, 1961. John F. Kennedy gave an afternoon joint um, speech to a joint session of Congress. And at that time, he pledged that the United States would go to the moon by the end of the decade. And it became a great bipartisan effort, the word moonshot enters our culture in earnest and uh, it cost about 25 billion dollars to go to the moon that would be about 185 billion today but we did it to beat the russians and uh, jack kennedy always said america had to be first that the new frontier was one of outer space he would call it the new ocean and that we had to win and he became an incredible salesman as president so i trace early jack kennedy's evolution on aviation uh, and as it matures into the space age, but also uh, the birth of rockets and a Cold War rivalry with Soviet Union. It's a global story about American supremacy in the aerospace field. I want you to look at a still photograph. If you walk into the Air and Space Museum here on the mall, uh, you will see this display and you have the spirit of, of uh, St. Louis on top hanging below that, I mean, above the lunar module from, I believe it's, I don't know which Apollo shot it was, but anyway, when you look at that, what do you think? I say give the curator of the museum a big raise, because that's a smart way to do that. Without Charles Lindbergh in 1927's transatlantic flight, which triggered this wave of aviation mania into the 1930s, there would have been no Apollo 11. Uh, we had Langley, Virginia, that started dealing with all sorts of new technologies with wind tunnels and uh, military aviation testing. Um, most of all of the astronauts were pilots. They're, they're heroes to, to a man. Of all, for example, all the Mercury astronauts that went up during John F. Kennedy's presidency all talked about Lindbergh being a hero. In fact, Neil Armstrong, when he landed on the moon, had brought with him a piece of um, the Kitty Hawk from Orville and Wilbur Wrights in 1903, um, you know, famous, um, you know, North Carolina um, flight. The point being that aviation and space exploration are partners. And if we didn't, uh, the 20th century is the, the great uh, century of flight. I want to show you some video, and we've seen this many times, but it does create a sensation. And I want you to react after you see the early part of it. It's a Saturn V, it's Apollo 6, and let's watch it and then we'll get Great. your reaction. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, we have ignition. All engines are running. What do you think when you see that? 
Well, first off, just how large it is, and it doesn't do it justice on film. I mean, that rocket is gargantuan. I mean, it just just sticks Statues of Liberty in it. It's uh, it's that large, and also it's the culmination of um, really since World War II of perfecting a moon rocket. Um, Werner von Braun, who's a um, Nazi rocketeer that I write about in my book, uh, he during World War II was the first one to create the V two rocket. Uh, those rockets rained on London, killed people. It was a war weapon. But by the time we get the Saturn class, Werner von Braun had been out in El Paso at Fort Bliss. In 1950, he had moved to work with the Army, U.S. Army, in Huntsville, Alabama. And um, this is one of the biggest, I think, and most important engineering marvel of mankind. People can go look at the pyramids if they want. They could go look at the wall in China. But when you look at the Saturn rockets, um, designed out of Huntsville, Alabama, uh, there's really been nothing like it. The power um, that um, mankind was able to put together in the thrust of a rocket that large. The payload capacity there is just off the charts. But at the end of the book, a couple of times you write about Werner von Braun, and I want to read it back to you and get your reaction as to why you did this. It is my personal opinion, based on all that I've read, that Werner von Braun was culpable for war crimes associated with the German Third Reich using slave labor to build his V-2s during World War II. Why did you feel you had to write that? Um, because von Braun was a Nazi, and he was part of the SS. And in order to build his rockets, which were the best, look, Germany had the rockets. We put money in the United States in World War II, in the Manhattan Project, into building atomic weapons. The special German project of rocketry, it was extraordinary, but to build them at a breakneck speed that Hitler wanted, and Hitler was all pumped up on amphetamines, like, I want more, faster, faster. They started uh, using slave labor in a very, very cruel way to build uh, these ro the V-2 rocket. We're talking about um, um, Jews, Slavs, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, with in the most inhumane conditions imaginable. I write in the book about Dora, which is a, a, a subcamp of you, you know of, of some of, of Book and Wall and some of the larger camps, but. Uh, and von Braun got away with a lot. He wasn't tried for war crimes because the United States wanted his genius. And in a something called Operation Paperclip, um, von Braun surrendered, and all of the or most of the best German rocket scientists were grabbed by the U.S. Army under Operation Paperclip and relocated to the United States. And so I want people, particularly young people, to understand we're on the 50th anniversary of going to the moon. If you're studying engineering, rocketry, aero, um, aerospace, you're in the aerospace industry, Von Braun is a thumbs up. He's essential. He's a genius. But we also have to look at the immorality of the way some of his early rockets were built when he was on team Adolf Hitler. And uh, so I wanted to make it clear in the book because I give him a lot of credit for getting us to the moon, but we also have to think sci we can't have science run amok in the way that von Braun and others were doing it in, in the Third Reich. Got some video of Werner von Braun. This is 1955. It's a Disney uh, video. Let's just watch what he, see what he looked like then, what he was talking about. A voyage around the moon must be made in two phases. A rocket ship taking off from the Earth's surface will use almost all the fuel it can carry 
just to attain a speed great enough to balance the pull of gravity. Unpowered, it will then keep circling the Earth in an orbit outside of the atmosphere. This is the first phase. However, if we can refuel the ship in this orbit with fuel brought up by cargo rocket ships, it can set out on the second phase, the trip around the moon and back. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I want to drop yeah, yeah. back in your book and read again what you said earlier after that last comment. NASA was lucky to have a rocket engineer as talented as Von Braun to work on Apollo, but he shouldn't be remembered as an American hero. His direct role in the Nazi concentration camp labor programs, where thousands perished under inhumane conditions, makes him a pariah figure of sorts. Yeah, I mean, look, we're at a time now up there Holocaust deniers, anti-Semitism on the rise, and you don't want to just say, oh, shucks, I w he was once a Nazi, but then he turned to our team. Uh, he was in the SS. I mean, he was a, a um, you know, he was working, he would claim that he had no choice, it was the German homeland, but many rocketeers uh, left Germany, um, or at least a few did of the key ones. He stayed there and worked for Germany to annihilate the world. Their, their goal, his goal, would have been what Hitler's was. I'd, he'd love to figure out a way to destroy New York, Philadelphia, Boston. And the V-2s that he built just killed civilians. These are just 250, 220-mile radius. They would fire off a V-2 from Belgium or the Netherlands right into civilian London and kill people. Now, the argument is, didn't the United States do that with bombers at Dresden? Didn't, are we culpable then for building the atomic bomb on uh, against Hiroshima and Nagasaki? The difference is we were fighting for democracy. He was fighting for German totalitarianism. We can never forget the Holocaust. I'm here in D.C. with you, um, and my son's with me. I'm going to the Holocaust uh, Museum. You know, we cannot forget. So I wanted to make clear in the book, you're picking out some of my criticisms of him, but at other times I'm talking about how he was the essential man to get us to the moon. Um, but we want to put him into a proper historical perspective and not glorify him. How was he essential to the moonshot? He was, in my mind, the key. Because what happened was, um, after World War II, when he came here, he was put out at Fort Bliss in, in El Paso. We didn't use missiles in the Korean War. We, it, was a, it was the heyday of incredible um, aviators and um, aces in the Korean War. Neil Armstrong was one of our extraordinary pilots. But our missile program was falling behind. But suddenly, we were surprised by the Soviet Union. From 1945 to 1949, the United States is the only country with a nuclear monopoly. By 1945, the Soviet Union gets nuclear weapons. And then by Sputnik in 1957, they're, they're able to put a satellite um, into space before us. This period of 45 to, say, 57, we were lagging behind in missile technology. It wasn't prioritized. But once von Braun gets to Huntsville, he starts saying, let me do it. I can do it. I know how to. I could beat Russia with a satellite. Dwight Eisenhower didn't listen to von Braun much. You would think he would have because he was the Army's rocketeer. But he went with Vanguard, which was Navy. And if you look at old clips of the Navy trying to launch rockets, you see them crumbling on their pads. Uh, it was by default that von Braun and his ex-Nazi rocketeers out of Huntsville were given a green light. And it was Jack Kennedy who believed in Werner von Braun because they first met in 1953 when um, you know Henry Luce 
of Time Magazine had written the introduction to Jack Kennedy's Why England Slept. He was real close to Joe Kennedy. So he picked young Senator Jack Kennedy, who won the Senate in 1952, and Werner von Braun, who was in Collier's Magazine, and it was starting to be embraced by people like Walt Disney, um, as the two judges for Time Man of the Year, and, you know, and celebrity judges. And so they got to hang out together, Kennedy and Werner von Braun, and both were handsome, both debonair, both had a an eye for fashion and and um, women. Um, they were they were kind of a, a a tag team of sorts, and they got along well. And where so Kennedy never held his Nazism against him. For Jack Kennedy, saw Werner von Braun had to do with Germany. I had to do the Solomon Islands. It was our generation had to fight the war. And for Kennedy and von Braun, um, Adenauer. And that's who they picked Conrad Adenauer for Time Man of the German the, Chancellor. Uh, West German Chancellor, who's who they picked. But Adenauer, De Gaulle, um, Churchill, Khrushchev, um, you know, these were 19th century men. They were born in the 19th century. Jack Kennedy and Werner von Braun saw themselves as 20th century guys. They were both born a few years from each other, they both had to serve in the war. They were the new generation. And Jack Kennedy, I don't want to say amoral, but he never thought anything negative about von Braun's serving in Germany, where Eisenhower did. Ike had to see the camps of, of, of the Jews and the Holocaust slaughtered. He said, film it, Eisenhower, so people won't become deniers of what the German people did. So Eisenhower never personally cottoned to Werner von Braun. Jack Kennedy did. In fact, they became great friends. In my book, I write about their visits, Kennedy's visits to Huntsville and Cape Canaveral. He would, if he saw Werner von Braun, he'd pluck him and say, fly with me. Um, they became that tight. How did Werner von Braun and the other Germans get to the United States, and what year was it? Um, 1945, um, right in the summer of 45, well, in the spring of 45, um, the Third Reich was crumbling, and as we all know, when by the time uh, Adolf Hitler committed suicide, the gig was up in Berlin, and that was a match march of who was going to get the German war spoils. The number one most precious thing that Nazi Germany had was Werner von Braun and the German rocket scientist. If you could take that technology, you would be the world superpower. And Werner von Braun thought for a minute and said, you know what, I'm not going to go to Russia. Who wants to live in Russia? It's a horrible lifestyle. Britain is broke. Plus, all my V-2 bombs have been raining on them. I'm not going to get a fair shake. The United States. So he sent his younger brother, Magnus. But he actually took all of his blueprints, all of his war materials, forged a document. It's too long a story for us. You'd have to read the book. But it moved the rail car von Braun from the, the rocket base and hid all of this in a mine shaft, all of his, his essential blueprints, etc., closed the mine shaft, went into the Bavarian Alps, and then said, find me, told his brother to go on a bicycle, Magnus von Braun, find Americans. And suddenly a guy from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, put a gun, and he said, my brother's the creator of the V2. And the U.S. soldiers, oh, come on, give me a break. But they took him in, interrogated him, and realized, wow, here they are. And we went and got them, the whole kit and caboodle. And von Braun was worried about not being charged with war crimes. And what he wanted to do was work for the United States Army. 
um, a, we brought them over. Um, most, some of these parts went to Annapolis, some came through the port of New Orleans, we, it, and I document that. But in the end, they went to be tested on the White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico. And you can go visit it there today, Roswell. Uh, area. Roswell, New Mexico is where our great American ro- early rocketeer Robert Goddard um, moved after he basically he was a menace in Massachusetts with his rocketry, so he moved out there to the clear blue New Mexican skies. And so von Braun was under house arrest. He had a, wherever he went, he was being watched. Um, they let him bring marry a young um, his young a young woman from Germany and bring her to America. And I wouldn't want to say that he would say von Braun, I'm a prisoner of peace. But he was under surveillance. But they let him. We started rebuilding these V2s and testing them in the New Mexico desert. And it became clear that we had gotten the Albert Einstein of rocketry. And um, I, I don't fault the U.S. Army for doing it um, because what were the options if Oh, we didn't bring them over there. If we let the Russians get them, um, I don't like Russia. My career as a Cold War historian, I'm not somebody who gets soft and fuzzy about the Soviet Union because I've read too much about Stalin, and I don't like totalitarian governments. So um, all things considered, we did the right thing of giving them jobs here and relocating them. But they, they all have asterisks by their name in my mind for having served in the Third Reich. You are a professor at Rice University, and on September the 12th, 1962, at Rice University, President John F. Kennedy made a speech, and here's an excerpt from it. For the eyes of the world, now look into space, to the moon and to the planets beyond, and we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace, we have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first, and therefore we intend to be first. Got the impression from your book that he was for this idea of going to the moon and against it and for it and the money got into the th- what what was the, the the he didn't have many years to live after that speech so <clears throat> well that's a great speech his rice speech of september 12 1962 i think is kennedy's best speech uh, i think it's one of the greatest presidential speeches ever uh, it's the only speech a president gives where he really frames science and exploration uh in a way that's memorable um, NASA officials uh, wrote some of the lines. Ted Sorensen contributed. Only Kennedy could deliver a speech like that with great conviction. By the way, why Rice? Um, Rice was in Houston, Texas, and um, that's where a lot of the pork was going. What I write about in my book is NASA's created in 1958 um, out of a reaction to Sputnik. And Lyndon Johnson is the big engineer of getting NASA created out of the Senate. Lyndon, or, uh, Dwight Eisenhower goes along with it, but once Lyndon has his fingers in the pie, Houston starts becoming a big place to get a lot of the, the billions of dollars that gets pumped in into the economy. The Manned Space Center is built down there. It's named after Lyndon Johnson Manned Space Center in Houston. But Albert Thomas, the congressman from Houston, 
um, a, uh, was part of the Brown and Root crowd that built dams for FDR and, and, and the like. Um, now they started building moon ports. And um, they, he was powerful because he was head of Congressional Space Appropriations. And then a, a, a Senator Robert Kerr from Oklahoma was a pal of Lyndon. And Kerr also wanted some of this dollars coming into um, Oklahoma. After Jack Kennedy in March, there, there are two big speeches of Kennedy, and they often get confused. March 25th, 61, he goes to Congress. He says, we're going to go to the moon. The next day in Tulsa, Oklahoma, all of the big companies and, uh, um, you know, uh, space enthusiasts and, um, and engineers, scientists, et cetera, meet in Tulsa. Um, and then the next big Kennedy speech is in 62 because a midterm election's coming in 19, so September 12th, he goes on a space tour to remind people of what he's done with NASA, which was quite considerable in that year of 62. John Glenn, on February 20th of 62, you know, went into space um, for nearly five hours, um, and it became the biggest hero since Charles Lindbergh. So Kennedy there in Rice is going into the belly of the beast, the land where the Manned Space Center is at in Houston used to be property of Rice. Rice switched the property. Rice became the first university really doing space science. And Kennedy filled up the football stadium there. 10,000 Boy Scouts were in that audience right there. We had about thirty to 40,000 people listening to that speech. Everybody else was fanning and sweating, and Kennedy doesn't sweat. Why Jack Kennedy doesn't sweat, I'm, I don't know because everybody was soaked, but he was always kind of cool. And after that Rice speech, he went to the Manned Space Center, which then was on Telegraph um, Road in Houston, Telephone Road in Houston, and met with the astronauts and went into a mock-up of a lunar module. Then he goes to St. Louis to McDonnell um, Aircraft and uh, gives a big speech, basically jobs. I'm giving, you know, today President Trump talks about jobs to Ohio and the like. Well, going to the moon brought jobs to St. Louis. It brought jobs to New Orleans. It brought jobs to Florida and Houston and San Antonio and Pasadena. And, you know, what the genius of Jack Kennedy was he never cared for Harry Truman. Eisenhower was Republican and who he beat up on as being weak on space and the missile gap. He goes back to FDR and thought FDR's New Deal was too big, but what FDR did well was um, beyond Social Security and things, but FDR built the TVA Grand Coulee Dam. What is, and Eisenhower had the highway system. Kennedy's thinking, what's my administration's big public works thing? And what I admire is he picked the right number, technology. The computer chip, really, as we think of it today, gets developed in the late 1950s. Compu uh, modern, uh, modern aviation starts kicking in. By the time when Jack Kennedy runs in 1960, there are no computer science classes at universities. By the time he's killed in Dallas, there are computer science classes everywhere. Uh, air travel is replacing automobile and train travel in many ways. I mean, people are flying more and more hub airports being developed all across the country. So it was the jet age, the space age, and Kennedy grabbed onto it and made that the cornerstone of the new frontier. But did he vacillate during the period of time and during that uh, when, you know, up until his death about whether or not they really should go to the moon? You know, Brian, it's, um, to a degree, look, this is expensive. And he's putting everything on it. The new frontier is suddenly going to the moon. And by the end of the decade, mean I won't be president 
when we get to the moon. And so for 61 and 62, the budgets flowed. And James Webb of NASA, the head of it, is a genius technocrat and is able to keep the money going. The thing that Kennedy does well to conservative Republicans, the Barry Goldwater group, for example, wanted this moon, Eisenhower called going to the moon a stunt. Jack Kennedy's kooky race. Joe Kennedy, his father, found out of the moon speech. He called the White House. Somebody, you know, I think Evelyn Lincoln, his secretary, got the father on the phone. He goes, tell Jack he's going to blow the whole budget on one of his crazy schemes. God damn it, I knew Jack would do something like this. You know, his own father thought going to the moon was a reckless idea. So Kennedy was enough of a pragmatist to keep occasionally in meetings questioning was this wise? Is this smart? Should we be, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, should we be collaborating with Russia? Should we not be? But make no mistake about it, he, in the end, never wavered. Days before his death, virtually two days before his death, he was in San Antonio at Brooks Air Force Base with astronaut Gordon Cooper at his side, talking about all of the medical marvels coming out of NASA CAT scans, MRIs, and, and uh, uh, kidney dialysis machines, and et cetera, uh, space medicine as a new field. He goes to um, um, Houston and is there with Albert Thomas, and it's a very funny moment because he says to Thomas, we are going to put the biggest payroll, and then he said, I mean payload in space, and everybody laughed because he had poured so much money into Houston and San Antonio, the Kennedy year administration, hoping to hold Texas in 1964. Remember, this is still pre-Civil Rights Act to Lyndon Johnson, 64-65. Kennedy needs to win the South. It's still a Democratic South. And most of these Democratic Southern senators, Brian, aren't real keen on James Meredith at Old Miss and Kennedy's Justice Department on civil rights. So Lyndon's telling these Democratic Southerners, hey, we're going to get you $150 million into Biloxi, okay? You know, just stay, don't worry about the civil rights, all the, you know, you know there, so there was a lot of quid pro quo trading going on with making the Southern zone um, a key a beneficiary of going to the moon. But then Kennedy, on his way to Dallas, when he was in the convertible, and incidentally, Gordon Cooper was supposed to be his space hero with him in the car that day. who was Gordon Cooper? Gordon Cooper was one of the Mercury astronauts, uh, the most recent to have gone up, and was a big popular hero. And Kennedy knew he was popular in San Antonio and Houston, but not in Dallas, so he really wanted a space hero at his side. But they called Gordon Cooper away from being with Kennedy. But um, at any rate, he had with him, going in the convertible, his speech for the trademark in Dallas was a space speech about doubling down and, and how successful our program is. Kennedy was very comfortable with running for re-election in 64 with Mercury, and Gemini, and Apollo, and the moonshot being part of his re-election strategy. Just briefly, so folks that may not have been alive in those days, Project Mercury 1958 to 63, what was it? Project Mercury, the simplest way to think about it is one astronaut. All of the Mercury missions are one. It starts with Alan Shepard um, and, um, in early 60, in the spring, April of 61, and it just keeps going, um, you know, um, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. And I write about all of the Mercury astronauts, all of the, the, the seven Mercury astronauts, six of them got to go on Mercury missions. Uh, Deke Slayton did not get to go up for Mercury, but up and down. And, and, and then, of course, with Glenn, 
uh, you're you're starting now to do orbits of the Earth, but it's still a solo astronaut. Project Gemini, sixty-two to sixty-six. What was that? And that tells you that it was created in sixty-two, but Jack Kennedy never lived to see a. a um, a Gemini astronaut go into space. Um, that has happened during Lyndon Johnson's watch. That was to put two astronauts into space. You're partnered up. And then you did things of trying to do rendezvous, docking exercises, but also spacewalking and the like. Um, and those were, it was successful. Both Mercury and, and Gemini were very successful programs. You list Apollo as being 1960 to 1972. It's when Apollo was created. The problem we have with Apollo is Apollo 1, in which um, it blows up in 1967 on a horrible tragedy in Cape Canaveral, and uh, three of our astronauts perish. And James Webb, ahead of NASA, said, I knew we'd have a space accident, but who thought it would happen on the launch pad? We always thought we wouldn't bring them back from outer space. And that starts making people wondering about the funding. Um, One of the things in my book to understand all of these, Mercury, Apollo, Gemini, is money. Surprise, surprise. And the money factor is who's getting the appropriations. Navy, who's in the rocket game, Air Force or Army. The inner service rivalry for space dollars is really intense. So the Air Force is, is keen on the Atlas where Saturn is army. So a lot of these, be, you know, becomes on who's getting all of the money. When Kennedy was alive, he really believed very strongly on uh, on putting money for Apollo into Von Braun's um, uh, Saturn program. How old were you in July of 1969? Now, that's a good question, because I have had to reflect on that. Uh, and I would have been... Um, Eight, nine years old. I would have been nine that, that shortly thereafter. Uh, so I was a little boy growing up in Perrysburg, Ohio, near Toledo. And Perrysburg isn't very far um, as a country drive to Wapakoneta, where Neil Armstrong's from. So I remember vividly, Brian, watching every moment. I slept on a sofa and built like a fortress. Uh, so I can watch all of this and try not to sleep for the, the big moment when Neil Armstrong sets foot on, on the moon. He had become my all-seasons hero. Uh, I was one of those kids collecting plates of all the Apollo missions and bobbleheads and trading cards of astronauts. I had Major Matt Mason, which were these like G.I. Joes of space, and I made like lunar camps and... Uh, and I realize now, only that I'm older, I wasn't a child of, you know, of World War II or the Great Depression. My big moment, when you're nine years old, you're very impressionable, it was the fact that Neil Armstrong was down the road from me. Um, and so my parents took me to Wapakoneta uh, before we walked on the moon. I drove around to see all the sites there. I was there for the opening of that museum. When Moon Rock came back, I went to go see the Moon Rock anxiously. So I was smitten and taken in by... Um, the going to the moon of the my childhood of the 1960s and early 70s. I have a list here. I'm going to read them out loud only because they deserve uh, being heard. Anybody my age will remember these names. These are the 12 men that walked on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Apollo 11. Pete Conrad, Alan Bean, Apollo 12. Alan Shepard, Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. David Scott, James Irwin, Apollo 15. John Young, Charles Duke, Apollo 16, Jack Schmidt, 
Apollo 17 and Apollo 17, last man to walk on the moon, Gene Cernan, 1972. Do you know any of those people? I do. And I, for Neil Armstrong, I got to do the official oral history of, um, he's of course passed, but I did the official oral history of Neil Armstrong with the late historian Stephen Ambrose. We're going to run a clip of that in a second, oh, okay. but tell us when you did it so we can... That was in 2001, but I had written Armstrong in the 1990s. I had finished my doctorate at Georgetown, and I had written a book on Dean Acheson and then one on James Forrestal. And I got the P.O. box for Neil Armstrong near Cincinnati, Ohio, and I sent him my book signed. And I got a little note back, Brian, from his personal assistant, uh, Plight, but it said he'll read one of the two books that you sent. And I, I remember feeling, God, I shouldn't have sent two. I knew it should have been one is too, too many. And they said he's not doing interviews, but we're keeping you in mind. So How long did you talk to him? Um, we spent a whole day, like six hours of talking to him at the Johnson Space Center. And the 9-11 tragedy had happened. The, I, mean, I People ask where I was when the 9-11 happened. I was in New Orleans watching the, the, watching the crumbling of, our, of the World Trade Center in New York City and thinking, there goes my, my Neil Armstrong interview. I was supposed to interview him a few days later, and all aviation was shut down at airports. Now, I was in New Orleans, so I knew I could drive to Houston, but they were closing airports places. And I found out from NASA that he doesn't cancel things, Neil Armstrong, and that he flies his own plane. So he flew his own private plane by himself and landed in uh, at uh, Johnson Man Space Center and walked in and uh, had him sign my book, which the NASA people didn't like uh, very much, but he did and put like a smiley face by Neil Armstrong. So it's a great possession I have and got to spend time asking him anything and felt the place that I made some progress in the Q&A was um, on the Korean War, which Armstrong and Korea, their stories unto themselves um, about his um, near death on combat missions and the like. But when it came to talking to Neil Armstrong about the moon, uh, I, I was too much of a humanities guy because at one point I was trying to open him up. He's an engineer from Purdue, which which you identify. You love Purdue, and I do too. It, what a great school. So many of our astronauts went to Purdue. But he's an engineer. It's a mission. Jack Kennedy put, we're going to the moon. It's my mission. Uh, so he was in engineer mode. And I said, Mr. Armstrong, don't you go up and like look at the you know, luminous moon and look and think, my God, I'm going to be you know stepping there right before? No. That was the answer to me. <laughs> Let's listen to you ask a question, and we can hear yeah. this. It's only audio. There was no video. And uh, this is back in 2001. Do you find it curious that NASA didn't script the line for you to say? Well, in retrospect, they might have wished that. But uh, the late Julian Chair, uh, who uh, really led the NASA relations with the outside world in, in many ways, uh, was ad absolutely adamant that uh, headquarters never put words in the mouth of their their people, not just astronauts, but anybody. They, they let people speak for themselves. Thanks Jul for playing that. Yeah, but Julian Shear, who doesn't get much attention anymore, how important was his PR, the relationships with the networks, and the whole story of NASA and the, and the unbelievably large. I'm probably an enthusiast of space because of them. Um, look, NASA as a government bureaucracy, um, an agency, 
what a remarkable public relations job they do. I, I, granted, I'm at Rice and we're, NASA's in my backyard, but I go around college campuses and kids still wear the NASA logo. They made NASA lunchboxes. They promoted products like, you know, Velcro or Tang, which had nothing to do with NASA, but they would assign their name. They made deals with Life magazine to profile the lives of the astronauts. I mean, uh, but, you know, NASA, to me, I think more government agencies need to let taxpayers know what they're doing with their dollars. Why, what's the, why doesn't the EPA you know, or the Commerce Department learn how to do public relations of what they're doing with taxpayers' money? We all knew what NASA was doing. NASA explained it to us. They, they, we, we saw photos and we're told, and they, they, they worked it in a way to make people feel good that their tax dollars are going to NASA. And to give Jack Kennedy a lot of credit, he came up with a great line of saying, you know what, to individuals, it is expensive to go to the moon. It's going to cost you probably 40 cents a week. People accepted that because he was being blunt with them. Today, it's like, well, it's not really your money. And, you know, can you say it is? But 40, you know. And so I think the combination of, of Julian and, and Kennedy and um, James Webb were able to capture the imagination that we did this in the 60s, although the 60s are the early Jack Kennedy 60s and the late 60s, but even with civil rights, Vietnam, um, you know, uh, protests, counterculture, uh, space was able to hang in there. And, uh, and alas, this summer, 50 years of going to the moon. So I think the moonshot is going to be seen in history as America's great achievement. I want to read a footnote that you wrote <clears throat> in the back of your book for a couple reasons. One, to ask you about the different things that came from the space uh, efforts, but also your effort. And this is the term space medicine. Since 1976, NASA has annually published Spinoff, a handsome publication featuring technological innovations from space research. I read all copies to glean the technologies that were most viable there is a profusion of mythology regarding the medical advances NASA did or didn't innovate. Where do you find spinoff? And tell us about the, the, uh, the myths. <clears throat> spinoff is tremendous because it's telling you where your tax dollars are going. And so, in other words, it wasn't just going to the moon. It's, it's product development, like uh, the perfection. The, the danger of dealing with NASA and tech, not what we get, got out of paying that $25 billion, is that some people will say, like, GPS was created by NASA. It was enhanced by NASA big time. But not, this inventing thing is where... Who said that they, they created it? Well, that's people that's out there. If you pull up, you'll see fake things that NASA created. I mentioned, for example, uh, Velcro. Um, Velcro was a, a guy in Switzerland who had his dog on Alpine hikes was getting burrs, so they pulled it off. And this is like in the 1940s there was Velcro, but suddenly people thought because NASA used the product, they pioneered in it. But where I get where NASA GPS is gigantic with NASA when you deal with the anti-icing, um, d- you know, devices on planes. Yes, and <clears throat> in, in, in figuring out um, and you know in all sorts of refrigerator uh, pressurized cabins, uh, refrigeration, um, and medical advances. But they they've learned to test it. They're part of a, if you like, an industrial academic innovation technology um, world 
spinoff though can tell you every one of the products with with great with great exactitude. Where do you find spinoff? Um, libraries. You can get it from NASA. Do they you still get, write these? these yeah, they're re- they've been regularly updated on what they're coming to let people know what that that it's a, a steal. What volume was it for you to have to read? How big? They're like you know news pamphlets How many for each one. Oh, tons! You know they got them from the library. They're like you know lined up like this, pretty pretty thick each one, about hundred pages. And where did you find them? Rice University. This is off the subject a bit, but it's about politics, and I, it was one of my big surprises in <clears throat> your book. And I want to ask you about it before we get lose time. I'm going to read it back to you. Uh, then a most unlikely spoiler appeared before the subcommittee. John Glenn, who echoed Webb's contention that funding women in space drained money needed for the moonshot and was generally a waste of tax dollars. I think this gets back to the way our social order is organized, Glenn testified. It is just fact. The men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes and come back and help design and build and test them. The fact that women are not in the field is a fact of our social order. How John you, Glenn. Where did you find that's uh, your Ohio guy? That's my my Ohio guy. Um, they they look. I write about women in my book, obviously in the NASA world, but mainly how they were frozen out. Uh, there was a group of of female astronauts known as the Mercury Thirteen, and they got uh, a man named Doctor Lovelace out in New Mexico. Uh, who was only tangentially connected to NASA. Uh, That gets miswritten sometimes. Um, But he started thinking women would be better astronauts because they consume less oxygen. Um, They tend to have smaller frames than men. The pool would be very great. And he had all these theories of why women would be ideal astronauts. And he started doing medical testing, extreme medical testing, like two-foot rubber hose down your throat to, you know, um, endurance test on bikes, uh, sweat, that just very tough thing and came up with a group of 13 camera-ready astronauts uh, or um, women. But why was John Glenn of all people? He ran for president. Glenn, uh, well, this is early Glenn, um, and they did not want, there was a movement to get women astronauts and they thought it was a male prerogative. It's just part of what the early 60s were like. I mean, Betty Friedan, um, book was just coming out and you know Rachel Carson Silent Spring and the women's movement was getting going but um, look all of these astronauts you just mentioned or we, we've been talking about are all white men I mean I write later about the, uh, Sally Ride and how now women in space are, are it's a big deal but we're still dealing in a highly um, chauvinistic um, misogynistic arrow when we're dealing with early NASA and um, and women were cut out. The Soviet Union put a woman into space before we did. You've mentioned several times Jim Webb. I've got some audio with Jim Webb talking to John Kennedy. Before we go to that, though, give us who was he and what role did he play in all this? You know, in the end, Webb uh, is not as interesting as astronauts, but Webb's the, Webb's the story. Uh, he was from North Carolina, a lawyer worked for Harry Truman uh, in the State Department and Treasury budget budget guy back in the Truman years, um, who became seen as an extraordinary um, Capitol Hill um, lobbyist, if you like. Um, but he then worked for uh, McGee Kerr Oil out in Oklahoma, gets back to Oklahoma again uh, with Kerr. And um, he was an extraordinary bureaucrat, technocrat is a better way of putting it. 
And he was the one Kennedy picked on the recommendation of Kerr and Johnson to head NASA. A lot of people didn't know whether NASA was going to get funded heavily by Kennedy because there's a uh, Jerome Wisner of MIT wrote a report saying don't do manned space to President Kennedy. Right when he became president, don't put men up there. They blow up. You've got a dead astronaut floating around in space right on your watch. We can do use monkeys or robots. Um, and uh, Webb came in and backed manned space. There would be no Alan Shepard, um, John Glenn, if, if it wasn't for Webb's persistence. But why Webb's so important? He was Southern. He, he got along with Democrats and Republicans. He was both a liberal, New Dealer, and a conservative somehow. And so he knew how to count the votes on Capitol Hill and keep the money flowing. No, you know, there used to be a, a comedy saying, no, no, no bucks, no bucks, Rogers. You want to go to the moon, it costs a lot of money. And Webb's the one who went and constantly got the appropriations. And, uh, and then he ran a, a squeaky clean shop in NASA. He ran it well. Uh, we got accomplishment out of somebody running a government agency with great efficiency. But you write a lot about the disagreements between Jim Webb and President Kennedy. I want to run this audio, and you got to follow it closely. There is script on the screen so you can see what they're saying. But uh, he's a bit feisty in this. Let's watch this, and then you can follow Great. up on him. We have to take the view this is the top priority. Number one, they are real unknowns as to whether man can live under the weightless condition that you will ever make the lunar land. This is one kind of political vulnerability I'd like to avoid such a flat commitment to. I agree that we want to very direct this, but we can wait six months. But you have to use that information to this thing. One year and one day later, Jack Kennedy was dead. But on this event, what's this difference between wanting to be preeminent in space versus landing on the moon? Great question. Thank you for having These are from the Kennedy tapes, uh, and some are just being uncovered at the Kennedy Library up in Boston. Webb, Robert Kennedy, Bobby called Webb blabbermouth. His style was very aggressive, as you heard there, and, you hear, and he'd push Kennedy. It is Kennedy. Nobody else that at the key moment is saying, I said the moon. It's my face hanging. I went to Congress and said a moon by the end of the decade. Now you're telling me I'm going to deprioritize the moon. The moon could be one of many. And Kennedy, they're saying, bull, because it's not about the moon. I don't care what we find. It's a lifeless moon. It's about beating Russia. Jack Kennedy is a, about winning. And he, once he dug in that we are going to beat the Soviets, it was Werner von Braun who uh, helped him think you can leapfrog. What Kennedy didn't like is the Soviets do something in space, we do something. They do, we do. This sort of incrementalism. The moon was the leapfrog. 
uh, which would make prove to the world that democracy, uh, technology in a democracy was more effective than a totalitarian communist uh, one. But Kennedy would go to his advisors. One of the things I like about the Kennedy tapes is you hear Jack Kennedy push it. There, there's give and take, and and you have to read between the lines because times so Kennedy say, well, what what if I just cancel the moon? Completely. What do you think? It doesn't mean he's recommending that. It's meaning he's looking for Im- input. What are what are things I can say? At the end of the day, by the time Jack Kennedy's killed in Dallas, there's no bigger cheerleader for going to the moon than Jack Kennedy, even more than Webb or Lyndon Johnson. Getting ready for the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon, there's a new documentary out called Apollo 11. Here's a little bit of the trailer from the movie, and I want to ask you whether or not it's worth going to. I'd like to know what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to to answer. Uh, It's a job that, that we collectively said that was possible and we could do and and of course that the nation itself is backing us so we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that the whole apollo program was designed to get two americans to the lunar surface and back again to earth safely the enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. 93 minutes in length. Have you seen it? I saw it and absolutely loved it. There's no talking heads, uh, no narration except for using um, news clips. And it's it really brings it all back home again. Uh, it's, it's a must-see. There are going to be a lot of space programs. I think nothing will beat Apollo 11. I remember you sat with President Trump during his transition period at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, and I remember you telling us that he talked about space. What put bring that forward after? Uh, well, what I was early right after Donald Trump got elected president, I was a historian for C or you know I'm a CNN presidential historian, and I got to talk. Uh, to Donald Trump, not on air, but off the record. And because I was writing this book, uh, we're in Florida, to asked him about the moon. And uh, he is of the belief that we need to go back to the moon uh, soon. There's a debate of the Mars crowd, let's get to Mars. And then there's a group that wants to go back to the moon and use the moon as a springboard for Mars. Um, and then in Trump's view, there needs to be a a space force, as he calls it, which would be a whole new branch of the military. That's not going to happen, only because Army, Navy, and Air Force aren't going to go for it. They don't want to lose money to a new new space force. So the timing would have to be right for a kind of a new... And, and one of the key things we, I didn't mention in all of our talks is that Kennedy's trying to push forward the peaceful going to space, that we're doing this for all of mankind in the name of peace. Well, that peace and militarization are very intertwined, but nevertheless, the United States doesn't want to say we're going into space to militarize it. You say, Um, though, he made a lot of people mad, meaning John F. Kennedy, when he gave his U.N. speech. Well, he did because he goes to the U.N. and and toys with the idea of what if we go, uh, well, let's go. Let's go, go to the Soviet Union and go to the moon. We'll go do it together. That'll end the Cold War. 
well, this creates a lot of uh, ripples because if you're going to go with the Soviet Union, they're going to learn all of our our missile technology secrets. In the end, going to the moon is about the history of missiles. It's about engineers and missile technology. Um, And and so it's complicated. Neil Armstrong told me... um, Brian, that, you know, it's just this perfect chemistry that made going to the moon. The technology kicked in, the Soviet rivalry, the right presidents, the right, the idea that we can re-get the new moonshot is going back to moon or Mars, it's tough. But the term moonshot stands for can-do-ism. It actually got popularized by Wally Moon, a baseball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who hit these towering home runs. And Vince Scully, the announcer, would say, there's a moonshot, you know, over the, over the right field fence. And, uh, but now moonshot means American can-do-ism. And so Joe Biden wants to do a moonshot for cancer. Or the Green New Left wants a Green New Deal as their moonshot. And Trump's moonshot is the Space Force. And you can break it up down the line. The point is people are looking to do something big and large that pulls the country together when we're so divided. On that first trip to the moon, Apollo 11, one guy that didn't get to walk on the moon was Michael Collins. Here is Michael Collins a little bit after talking about what it looked like from where he was in the command module. Moon uh, changes character as the uh, angle of sunlight striking its surface changes. At uh, very low sun angles, close to the terminator, or dawn or at dusk, it has the uh, the harsh, uh, forbidding characteristics which uh, you see in a lot of the photographs. On the other hand, when uh, the sun is m- more closely uh, overhead, the midday situation, uh, the moon is uh, takes on more of a of a brown color, uh, almost a it becomes uh, almost a, a rosy looking place, a, a fairly friendly place. He didn't get to walk on the moon. How did they decide who did? Well, Neil Armstrong was a civilian. And with the Vietnam War going, at that point, we wanted the first man on the moon not to be in the military. Um, We haven't talked about Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins much, but let me just say, people misunderstand, Buzz Collins is a brilliant guy. Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin, I'm sorry. Buzz Aldrin's a brilliant guy. He got his his Ph.D. in MIT, um, but he's wired like an old Chuck Yeager test pilot, and he's all about Mars. Before we run out of that, let's watch him it, back then, oh, okay. because he did walk. But he Collins talked. wrote the best book, space book, of memoir of anybody. Okay. People Just out a there little bit, of 30 seconds of Buzz Aldrin back then. Uh, due to the uh, reduced force of gravity, your foot does not come down so often, so you have to anticipate ahead and control your body movement. And since your, your foot is not on the surface for a long period of time, in each step you're not able to bring to bear uh, large changes in your force application, which would enable you to slow down. So in general, we found we had to anticipate three or four steps ahead instead of maybe the one or two that, that you do on the surface of the Earth. His name is well known today, but Michael Collins is not as visible. Because he he's not one of those moonwalkers. But he's, uh, Michael Collins is an intellectual He's more of an academician. Uh, scholars love him because he can break things down. His memoirs were amazing. But think about the solitude he felt watching his other two, to, uh, you know, colleagues leave him, and he goes has to go around by himself out there in the lonely solar system. And alas, Brian, what came out of a lot of this is the pictures of seeing Earth, lonely, fragile, blue-green marble just floating out in this big, vast universe. 
out of going in the moon, the environmental movement started. You know, people start saying there are no boundaries, there's no borders. We're a whole earth, we've got to pull together. So there's a spiritual religious aspect of going in the moon for some of the astronauts, not Neil Armstrong. When people read your book, um, what do you think they will walk away from that they didn't think about before? Uh, I think Jack Kennedy was a better um, president than I had thought when I entered this in the sense of selling a program like um, P- Apollo to the taxpayers. Second thing, though, take away. Um, that the this is that the it's a revolution of satellites, um, telecommunications by Telstar, nineteen sixty two, with Kennedy as president. We now are living in a world of space satellites, and none of them existed before nineteen fifty seven. We're about out of time, and in the front of the book, uh, it says also by Doug Brinkley, and lists fourteen books that you've written, uh, and it, and of course this would be the fifteenth, but it doesn't list the magic bus. And it doesn't list Point de Auc, and it doesn't list the, I don't think it lists the John Kerry book. Why are those books missing? Um, good question. You may be the only one who notices that I didn't want it run too long, so I kind of picked ones that had something vaguely to do with the Cold War military policy, like my Walter Cronkite book or the presidency. So I get put down books, but you're right. I have the Reagan diaries down there, but I did uh, Boys of Point to Hawk on Reagan. I did a little book on Gerald Ford. Uh, so some of them aren't, aren't on that. And Rosa Parks. I don't know if that's on there. I'd put Rosa but, Parks. But, but, here we, but here we are 25 years after you did the Magic Bus, and we stole your idea and put a bus <laughs> on the road, and it's still on the road visiting communities, over a couple of thousand that's visited since then. So um, it was a little bit of a chagrin when I oh, saw it wasn't okay. listed there. What's your next book? Um, you know, I'm right now. I was. I think I'm going to be writing Silent Spring Revolution, uh, looking at Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, um, long '60s on the environmental movement and what happened with um, you know everything from the Earth Day in 1970 to Nixon creating the EPA, to Clean Air and Water Acts, uh, Silent Spring, William O. Douglas, David Brower, and the like. I'll really get, grab why environmentalism took such a fierce hold between 1960 and 1974. Doug Brinkley teaches at Rice, also is a CNN historian, and he has written his latest book called American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.